Hello and welcome to the Teaching Drama Podcast. I am one half of your hosting team. My name is Kyle A. Thomas and I am joined by... Hi, I'm Seth Wilson, the other half of your hosting team and uh, very excited to be here and to uh, get the holiday season started. Yeah, happy holidays, Seth. Yeah, you too. We have, oh, you have to apologize though to everybody out there because we didn't, we didn't release a, an episode last month. Uh, yeah, we, uh, <laughs> I guess uh, we got a little a bit of a head start on our own holidays. I <laughs> took, took uh, November off, but I'm very excited to be, uh, to be back in the saddle and looking forward to today's conversation. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, we've got a lot of good stuff planned to talk about today. Really interesting things, uh, taking a different approach. But before we get into that, um, Seth, I think you're the one that has the trivia question up for me this this month. I do, um, and I think you're going to know this one. But uh, but this kinda... we always set it up like that. Yeah, like oh, you're you're going to know this. Just <laughs> and it's always such a disappointment when I don't know it. Yeah, so no, they... I always feel like a huge failure. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, so none of Shakespeare's plays are set at Christmas specifically. None of his plays really deal with Christmas as a holiday, but there is one that um, scholars theorize may have been written as part of a Christmas celebration. And which one is that? Comedy of Errors. Oh, that's a good guess. Oh, uh, Wait, no, kick... I hang on. I'm going to I'm going to contest this one a little bit, but go ahead and tell me what okay. the answer is. Well, I was I was uh, Twelfth Night. Um, oh, yes. Well, of course, because yes. yeah, yeah, because like uh, Twelfth Night, you know, it's the last day of the Christmas holiday. And uh, it's theorized that the title of the play, um, you know, since what you will, this the alternate title makes a lot more sense for the, the plot. That the play, the title of the play, Twelfth Night, uh, refers to the fact that it was written to be performed as a part of a Christmas celebration. Christmas, uh, very, very popular, very heavily celebrated in um, Elizabethan and Jacobean um, and even Caroline England uh, to a certain extent. And that we could talk about this in the main part of the show, but you know, that was one of the major reasons behind the uh, the English Civil Wars and the eventual uh, closure of the theaters. Um, so. Uh, yeah, theater and celebration uh, very deeply intertwined in Elizabethan culture. And even though it's not about Christmas uh, at all, you know, the plot has nothing to do with Christmas. Um, the, it, it's possible, it, it's theorized that it was uh, originally created to be part of a larger Christmas celebration. Yeah, and the themes of uh, uh, like, a, like a misgendering and, and, and um, taking on a different costume to, to thus look like a different person, to look like a different gender in this case is is really centered particularly in english and and english culture of that period and and earlier so in the middle ages the feast of the circumcision is what happens after the first of the new year and alongside of that in many areas of 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 europe including england and, and particularly probably mostly in england there is this event called the feast of the fools and one of the kind of celebratory aspects of the feast of the fools is this kind of role reversal that would be done. And they have this position called the boy bishop. And so in a lot of cathedral schools and a lot of uh, ecclesiastical institutions around Europe, there'd be a day where a young boy chorister or something would be would give the ch- would, would be given the chance to play the bishop for the day. And like, that's a big, big role and a big position. And they had some kind of funny, you know, ceremonial stuff that they would do that would kind of you know play off this role reversal the, the young boys get to lead the the mass and that kind of stuff and or you know not 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 a a true mass but kind of a uh a variation of the mass a little bit and that sort of stuff so yeah it fits really well but I, i'm contesting it a little bit because okay we know for a fact that comedy of errors was now, now this isn't about like the, the the drama within the play the the plot or the characters or anything like that but the performance, the first performance of Comedy of Errors occurred at one of the inns of court on, I think, on Christmas Eve. Oh, is, okay. Yeah, and we have an actual, we have, we have actual documentation of the event. And so it, that was the first performance of this. was one of, the, one of the only plays in Shakespeare's canon where we know when and where it was first performed. And, and I think it was, I want to get, I'm guessing a little here. I don't have it in front of me, but I did the research when I directed the show a few years ago. And I think it's 1594. 
I don't remember which end of court it was, but for those of you out there, ends of court were the places where young men were training to become essentially the lawyers of, of England and the, the kind of larger bureaucracy of the English state. And so these were these were young men who were the kind of burgeoning, if you want to call them middle class of, of the, the English state at this time period in the early modern period. And so, yeah, one of the things they would do is throw all kinds of parties and good times for the for the winter break and and around Christmas time. And so Comedy of Errors was apparently with this raucous affair that they that was performed at one of these inns. And one of the young men recorded it and saved it for posterity. And now that's how we know roughly when the play was written, when and where it was first performed. So it's kind of cool. Anyway, uh, that's why I was that's why I was contesting your answer. OK. There. Well, I will accept comedy of errors. Um, and, you know, that's also, you know, that uh, makes sense as well. You know, you mentioned the um, themes of, of gender inversion and things like that. And that kind of carries on uh, to today. You know, we don't really have this, um, you know, the American theatrical Christmas tradition is um, everybody does a terrible version of a Christmas carol and, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, yeah, and that's, that's the thing. That's, that's really the only Christmas play as a stage, the many, many, many different adaptations but a stage version of the Christmas Carol, but in uh, in the UK, you know, the, where they do the Christmas pantomime, um, which despite the name is is not uh, performed as a mime show, um, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, gender inversion, there's still like one of the characters, one of the major characters in Christmas pantomime, which is sort of like a Commedia dell'arte where it's a, a loose form with a lot of improv and kind of a, a variance within certain parameters, but yeah. Um, the, uh, there's still a character that is all, almost always played as a, a man by a man in drag um, to, to this very day. So, you know, these themes of um, destabilization and misrule and, and merriment and, uh, are all sort of uh, related to the Christmas holiday. Um, and that gives us a, a good segue into uh, what we're going to talk about today, speaking of the holidays. Yeah. So one of the things that Seth and I discussed for this month's episode was what is the function of ritual or, or in, in theater and in performance and, and in our lives? And, and it, is it the kind of thing that should be more apparent in, in our work and, and actually more informational for our approaches, our methods and our practices in theater? So, you know, especially because both of us are theater historians and, and for me, I, I clearly I'm dealing with pre-modern medieval theater for the most part. And there's a lot of ritual in there that, that we're going to unpack a little bit, especially around this time of the year, the Christmas season and the new year. And, and so it's, it, it's been a part of theater since its inception. If you, if you look at the origins of theater being you know, really founded with the, with the ancient Greeks in, in the classical period, the, the fourth and fifth centuries BCE, you're, you're looking at essentially a, a culture that is building this practice of theater, this, this aesthetic form of, of storification in performance that comes out of a long history of ritualizing aspects of, of their lives at a particular time in the year to celebrate things like the opening of the trading season and, and these markets essentially reopening around the Mediterranean and kind of treating it a bit like a Mardi Gras affair, and then it becoming this, this event of theater that gives birth, so to speak, to the practice that we still do today. And so there's a lot of ritual in the origins of our art, but not that we necessarily always bring out in the work. Uh, what's your experience? Like, do you have any, like, like Seth, do you, do you have any experience with ritual in theater? Like, do you have a definition for ritual that you work from? Um, the bulk of my research has dealt with uh, the commercial theater, um, but uh, I, I have looked at and and in a, the one of the longer range projects that I'm working on, uh, I, I intend to go into this a little bit more. Um, but um, you know, I've looked at a, a lot of like um, the ways in which uh theater like you know um because mo most of my work is on theater the long 18th century in england and the atlantic world and um there were uh, contemporary with reopening the english commercial theaters there were also you know there were lots of celebrations of 
um, King Charles I as a martyr. Um, and uh, there were lots of, um, you know, Pepys, uh, who is the, the, the tireless friend of the 18th century theater historian, um, talks a lot about going to church and, and uh, sort of what the environment of the church was like, um, you know, and we, we have a lot of um, information like of in the um, continental Europe for, you know, like the, the tradition of castrati comes out of religious observance. Um, and you might, uh, do you need you might need to explain what yeah, castrati are yeah so castrati it's uh, unfortunate um, for our audience yeah <laughs> uh castrati uh were uh young boy performers um or or teenagers uh who um had an operation to uh basically they were they were neutered um so that to preserve to prevent their them from going through puberty to preserve their high singing voices um because in it originates uh in in one of um the letters that is attributed to the apostle paul he says uh, uh in ecclesia uh meaning women must be remain silent in church um and so to have someone to have a voice that could sing the soprano part they um they developed castrati they they would uh perform this operation um on uh these young men so that they could sing soprano parts um and they became uh it, you know they remain operatic singers it's it, they, they're very popular in uh italy and parts of continental europe and uh they become superstars really in lots yeah. of ways um and uh uh, perhaps uh ironically they were very uh highly sought after as um uh, sexual partners from women from the upper class because uh, there was no chance of becoming pregnant if you uh, slept with one of them. Um, so it's a very, a very interesting world um, there and, a, and you know, to, to find a way in which religious dogma really radically influences an entire strain of, um, of, of theater. Um, but you, you know, you asked like a de about a definition of ritual to work from, and I think yeah. like you know because this is hard. I think that's hard to do. I think I think a lot of folks misunderstand what ritual is. Yeah, um, you know, and I think that we think uh, in in contemporary life, you know, I think people would find it um, almost offensive to suggest that uh, that church is a performance, uh, whether yeah. you're you're. Catholic uh, or or a lapsed Catholic like I am, or um, a you know uh, from some sort of Protestant tradition, um, but you know there are uh, if you think about the Catholic Mass, like there are lines that are repeated. Everybody knows what they're supposed to say and when they're supposed to do certain things, um, and there are aspects of the the ritual of celebrating Mass or or going to church that are very much like a performance. That you know yeah. it's it's. Uh, um, I guess the the kind of go to definition that most theater scholars work from is is Richard Schechner's work um, that's about you know kind of combine draws heavily on um, anthropology yeah to unpack the way that performance works but the, this uh, the restored... yeah and his work his the book is performance is anthropology right isn't that yeah, the title yeah. of it yeah yeah and then there's uh, from ritual to theater I think is yes. or is that Victor Turner. Um, but you know there are a couple of like mid-century anthropologists like Geertz and Clifford and Victor Turner and um, um, that eventually morphs into what we now would call performance studies. Um, but the the idea of anything you do that is not immediate, you know, that is behavior that you've engaged in before, reperformance or yeah. re re no, representing. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Or restored behavior, yeah. which yeah. is representing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and lots of the things, you know, even if you um, if you are if you believe that there is a metaphysical aspect that you're, you know, you're whether you're talking to God or, or uh, invoking some sort of higher power, whatever it is, there are things that are. Uh, um, I, I don't want to use the word performative, so I'll say performancey about <laughs> uh, about those things. You know, it's a good uh, substitute. Yeah, thank you. Um, and uh, so, so um, yeah, but I, I think it's a really a really difficult thing because so much of our lives now are um, kind of like so much of modernity was about draining the yeah. ritual aspects out of yes. out of life and and you know like we are uh, it would appear to be seen and very much treated by the ruling class as uh, machines from which every last ounce of productivity must be extracted and that kind of 
obviates the place where a lot of things that were ritual might have lived. I don't know where, do you have a, a definition that you found to be particularly helpful in think, helping you think about it? No, I mean, you've really touched upon a lot of the stuff that I, I deal with and think about when it comes to ritual. One of the key things I want to differentiate though, it, and because I, I have this uh, memory of when I was an undergrad and we were, it was one of, one of my early acting classes and the professor was asking us to take a ritual. And I remember specifically he used that word take a ritual and then turn it into a performance, something to that effect. I, I don't remember the exact instructions of the assignment, but it was something to that effect. But what he really meant was take a routine and turning it into a performance. And, and I, I think that there's a key aspect here that I wanna make sure that we understand here. When we talk about rituals, because what you talked about in terms of the metaphysical aspects of ritual, that essentially what we're doing when we perform in ritual, and I don't think it's degradating. I can I cannot speak degradating to say that it is that ritual requires some type of performance. Um, it, it doesn't take away from the power of the ritual, but because in the performing of the ritual, what you're doing is you're accessing, unlocking, connecting to uh, that metaphysical aspect of it. Be it God, be it the universe, be it whatever that you find a grander kind of understanding of your own life in the scheme of kind of a cosmology that you're working from. Um, so like, like to me, that's the difference. What you do in the morning when you wake up and the steps that you go to, yeah, like there's a story in that, you know, getting out of bed and, and, you know, groggily going to the coffee pot in the kitchen, starting that while you, you know, use the bathroom and brush your teeth and, then you get your coffee and you put it into a mug that you grab, like all that kind of stuff. Like there's a story in that, sure. And you can turn that story into something that would make for a really interesting performance or for even good theater. And, and rituals have stories too, but the difference between the routine and the ritual is that access to the metaphysical, that aspect of, of doing the ritual creates the meaning. The story of a routine has to be aesthetized, you know, given the an aesthetic condition, changed, dramatized in some form to make it meaningful for a larger audience. Because your routine that you do in the morning is very different from my routine. And though we can find connection in that we do routines for how we get up in the morning, there's got to be some kind of larger sense of what we're trying to say about that that comes out of a story that's strung together for a particular medium, in this case, theater. Then you take something like ritual, it's not about, I mean, an individual can do a ritual in, you know, if, like let's say you pray, you know, your prayer can be a ritual, you do it by yourself, isolated, privately, the ritual still has meaning, it's still powerful, it doesn't have to be performed, doesn't have to be performed in front of people to be meaningful, and to be important to you and your life and, and, and shape your life in some way. So I think that's the key thing to remember about rituals and, and, and particularly versus routines that not, I mean, they're both great, but, but rituals a little bit more powerful, I think. And I think ritual leans itself to, because rituals, particularly high rituals, like what we're talking about here, when it comes to things like ceremonial stuff and, and, and worshipful practices, no matter what it is you may worship, that there's kind of already a theatricalization that's happening. There's aesthetics. You've got, you know, like I, you know, you and I both have uh, a, a lot of interaction with Catholicism, so we can kind of speak to that a little easier. I mean, you know, you go in the mass, you've got the the incense, you've got, I mean, truly engaging all the senses. You have the smell of it, the sights of it, the the feel of it, the musicality, the you know, when you when you participate in the Eucharist ceremony then you're, you're getting the taste of it. You're actually, you know, imbibing the, the wine and the, and the blood of Christ and the body of Christ and so on and so forth. So there's a whole kind of sensory experience surrounding it. And that's those, that experience is really shaped by aesthetic conditions. And those aesthetic conditions have changed over time, even within an institution like the Catholic church over a long, long, long period of time. So, so I, yeah, I think ritual naturally lends itself towards theatricalization trying to use all the $10 words I can today. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. What do you, like, do you find this? Like, like, like I'm, I agree with you that like, I'm not going to call what we do in mass theater. I mm. think that's insulting really. 
Um, it's not the same thing. But like what, I guess, what's the line? Where's the line between a ritual and theater? Is there a line? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's a really good question. And I think that's something that um, uh, people have kind of tried to um, unpack and figure out for a really long time. And, and that's something that we, you know, um, think about in terms of like the, you know, you mentioned Greek theater and its ritual aspects. And that's something that, um, you know, the, I think the, the sort of like standard theater history class description of what uh, the Greek festivals were is they, you know, exercises in, in worship, but that, you know, they were also exercises of state power and, and there's lots of different ways we can approach it. Um, you know, I think that it is, um, that, that, you know, perhaps the, the, the difference is that when you, you know, that, that you go to um, a ritual, you know, you, you uh, that the theater, theater as we conceive of it in the West um, and, and in America in particular, um, may be transportative, but I don't think it's supposed to be transcendent, um, if that makes uh, if that distinction makes sense, you know, you go to see it and, and you might see it as escapism to be taken out of your everyday life, to be challenged, to be taught something, to uh, to see um, a story that moves you in some way. But I don't think we tend to engage with it as um, something that is about uh, looking beyond and connecting to something beyond the the physical plane. You know, I think that's um, the the uh, the metaphysical like kind of um, uh, um, supernatural aspects of ritual, you know, that, that, um, in, in mass, uh, that's, you know, what you're invoking, um, you know, in a, a religious service, that's kind of the thing that you're trying to get at rather than, um, you know, whether it's, it's entertainment or feelings of catharsis or, or whatever specific things, a, a performance, a theater performance, theatrical performance is trying to, um, draw up. But, you know, it's also interesting because I think one of the, um, one of the ways in which most people have had, um, at, and certainly for me, this was the case, this is how I got involved in theater in the first place. The first theater I did was at church. Um, you know, we would do uh, two or three pageants uh, or, or, or show, you know, whatever you want to call them a year. Uh, usually there was an Easter pageant and um, there was a Christmas one and you, they were um, either, um, direct retellings of biblical stories, you know, it was like the, the Mary and Joseph story at Christmas time, or it was some sort of um, uh, allegory, you know, kind of in the, the way that like every man uh, kind of engaged with the lessons of the, the tenets of whatever the biblical story was and presented it in a slightly different way. And I think that's how, you know, if you grew up in a religious tradition, odds are at some point, you were in some kind of church performance. And, you know, whether that's uh, like a, a, you know, very literal theater, piece of theater with memorized lines, you know, that aims to uh, almost in a Brechtian way to teach the audience something, or, um, you know, uh, most American churches have music, um, depending on your particular religious tradition of varying quality and ability to uh, keep rhythm, um, you know, uh, the, all us white people we, we clap on the ones and the threes i'm gonna tell everyone it's supposed to be on the twos and the fours that's how you keep it going <laughs> yeah the uh the the choir at uh, the baptist church that i went to in my youth was uh not great but made up for it with vigorous enthusiasm um uh but you know I, there are lots of things like that that um that um <clears throat> And, and I, you know, it's tough because I think there are lots of places where there is overlap. You know, you go to the mm. theater uh, to see to see theater theater, um, to connect to other people, to understand how other people see the world, to learn things, um, to, to be entertained. And you go to uh, ritual as it's constituted in, in our society uh, for some of the same reasons. Um, and so it's really hard, I yeah. think, to separate, you know, it's one of those things that like, if you think about it, you know, and if you ask someone, they'll say, oh yeah, it's, they're very different. But when you really start to peel back the layers, um, there are so many aspects that, you know, the way that we perform rituals is very performance-based. It's very much based in 
the same kinds of things that we do to put on plays. And that's, um, I think that there, like, there is a lot of material on this, and yet I somehow think it's a little bit underexplored somehow. That that yeah, yeah. No, no. I I, I got to completely agree with you because I think there's like an affectual intersection here that essentially what we take away from ritual experience and from theater is the power of it. And we are moved in, in similar ways by both forms. I, you know, I, I really like what, what, uh, Wale Soyenka has to say actually, um, about ritual. Cause he, he writes a lot about that. And, and of course, a lot of his drama and his understanding of drama, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, uh, Soyenka comes out of Western Africa and he's educated both in Africa and in England, and and he's he's he, he writes plays in English, but it, but they're about themes and characters, and 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 based in a kind of a dramaturgy that comes from his African roots. And uh, he says this about about um, you know kind of ritual and in relationship and kind of encapsulated within his, within his ideas about theater. He says ritual equates the divine in parentheses. He also has superhuman, so ritual equates the divine superhuman dimension with the communal will fusing the social with the spiritual and i really like that and i think that that is pretty indicative of, of of how we should look at ritual and that one of the things that i think i i think in our world today you know we're talking about 2000 the very end of 2021 about to open the door on 2022 um we're firmly within the 21st century and i think you have people really returning to ritual in some very, very interesting ways. But in particular, and I don't, and I don't necessarily mean religious ritual. I do want to under, underscore that because, you know, you look at the demographics around the world, particularly in um, quote unquote, Western nations like the United States and in Europe, that church attendance, religious belief tends to be on the decline. But obviously ritual isn't just about religion and that ritual is, is, can be employed in one's life in many, many ways. But the thing that I think is what I, what I take away from that quote more than anything else is this aspect of the communal and the social and that more than anything, and I would argue more than theater right now, the way that we do theater today, ritual is about community. Ritual binds you into a community with other people who practice the same ritual and are looking for the same or, or similar meaningfulness out of that ritual. And nonetheless, the, you and those in your community respect that ritual. They respect it deeply and they respect it along the same kinds of lines. And so you've got this sense of the performance is there not just to enact the grander significance, the kind of metaphysical significance of the ritual, but as a way to actually bring you into closer communion with those in your in your neighborhood, in your in your town, in your community, whomever they may be, and and I think that's I think that is the thing that we are looking for, or at least I see society really looking for in the twenty first century. That there was a point at which. Uh, you know, and, I, and this is an unexpert opinion to some, I, this is just my kind of looking at the world. There was this point at which religion really filled a gap in society. And, and that's why you saw, particularly in the United States through the 20th century, a really, really strong attendance at church, participation in, in religious ceremony, religious belief, and those sorts of things. And, and since that's fallen off, we're looking for something to fulfill that hole. And, and I don't, it's hard for me to identify exactly where, where those things are happening. I mean, in some degree, I think social media is doing a lot of it, but I think theater needs to pick up that, that mantle and really use, show that like theater is about creating spaces where we go and, and we perform something that for us has meaning. And from that meaning, we find connection with one another. We find connection beyond ourselves and, that gives us greater purpose in life and kind of reinvigorates us as individuals, but also as a community. And one last thing here too, also, I know that there's been a, <laughs> this, I saw something not too long ago about kind of atheist churches. Have you heard about this? 
these i haven't no yeah they're like they're they're you know i'm using i'm using air quotes for everybody out there atheist churches i think that's what they're called and they're essentially they're really just gatherings of people who have no religious faith who have no kind of religious practice themselves and they they meet on a particular day of the week and they sing some songs and they do some performance things i don't even really know all the ins and outs of it but but to me that's that's like why isn't theater that meeting point like why isn't theater providing the the space and the place and the performative means for that interaction and that connection um yeah that's a really great question and you know you talked about you you mentioned swing again one of his most famous plays uh death and the king's horseman is about um a, a failed ritual that's meant to rejuvenate the community and and there's all sorts of colonial um overlays in it as well um but uh you know, I think about, um, I, and and this is going to be probably, you know, you could talk about this more effectively than I can, but I think this will be something that is uh, is relevant to to your uh, your work and some and the way that you and I both see theater. But you know, I remember when I took undergrad theater history. Um, basically, the 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 arc of the course is the Greeks invented theater, and it was great. And then uh, nobody did anything for a long time and it was really boring. And then Shakespeare showed up and fixed it. And then there was nothing <laughs> for a long time until the 20th century when realism was invented and realism is good. And so, you know, it's a happy ending. Yeah. Um, but thinking about like, you know, I think about, especially as I got out of, um, and, and the reason for this, you know, it's not, this is not like a great insight, but it's because we have such a, a literary bias in, uh, Anglophone, the Anglophone theater world that let's, you know, we think of theater as a thing with a script that you memorize. Um, and so much of the not the parts of theater that don't get as much attention are not heavily literary, you know, and I think about like, um, a couple of years ago, um, I happened to be in Oxford for the summer doing some research and um, there was a group that the Oxford University Church um, had uh, they had a, a poet in residence there. Um, and this poet had was collaborating with um, a graduate student who was a specialist in, um, I think, medieval theater. And uh, they, they put together a set of mystery plays um, that, you know, they, the Oxford mystery plays. And they got different, you know, much like the mystery play sequence um, of the, the Middle Ages. You know, they found like they had a girls water polo team, uh, the right, the, the Noah's Ark play, um, you know, they found oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, they like the Oxford Police Department wrote one of them. I forget which one, maybe, maybe the judgment, last judgment, I think, uh, you know, they tried to find like, oh, they had the had, police do the last judgment. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> yeah, policing is kind of different in the UK. It's not quite yeah. as messed up as it is here. Um, Please tell me they had a, a Judge Dredd character. <laughs> Uh, dispensing justice on the streets. Um, uh, but, you know, it was, uh, I, and I, I happened to be uh, able to, you know, I auditioned for it and, and was cast um, in one of the roles. And it was really, it was a really fun community event. Most of the people who were doing it were not religious or were not, you know, I, I did not attend the Oxford church. A few people did, um, you know, some of them were C of E, uh, folks who, who, you know, good Anglicans who wanted to do this as a part of their uh, religious uh, faith, but a lot of people just wanted a community event, and it was a way, you know, thinking about, like, I, I always assumed that medieval theater would be insanely boring until you think about it as, like, um, you know, it's a community event for different people to show things off, you know, yeah. to show off how their their staging prowess, their the cleverness of their writing or their storytelling, the clever ways they can intervene in the stories, um, you know, and kind of like as a community event, trying to one up each other. And you think about like how um, you know, I, I mean, this was a problem even before the pandemic, but how atomized uh, life is in post millennial America. I mean, I think that's you mentioned social media is filling the gaps, and I think that the fact there are a myriad problems with social media um but the fact that these gaps were there to be filled because of the way that people are isolated from one another and mm. the fact that like that um you know we've talked we talked uh, i think in our first episode this year about how 
uh, about a federal the idea of a federal theater project yeah um and communities making making shows about their concerns you know as a way of working through um ideas you know uh, of of reckoning with themselves of coming to an understanding of disparate elements of the community and that would be a really great thing and we d we don't have that now and i think that you know, uh, we do tend to think of like religious drama um, as either being, uh, you know, like a, a Christmas pageant that kids do that you watch before yeah. you go home on Christmas Eve to do your family stuff or uh, as like, you know, the sort of like touring mega shows that kind of, you know, retell uh, biblical stories or, or what have you. Um, but, I, you know, I think there could be a really like important community aspect uh, and theater could take on a really ritual aspect if, uh, insofar as it's community-based. And I think that yeah. that's a thing. I would love for there to be more of that and to figure out a way to do more of that. Well, um, I would say, I, I, you know, to, 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 in, in speaking about, like, how do you do this? Like, uh, you know, if there's anyone out there listening who's interested in, in what you're talking about, because I think, I think you're spot on, I, 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 I would recommend Augusto Boal. Like, I think he's... He's probably got in his Theater of the Oppressed, his book by the same name, Theater of the Oppressed. Mm -hmm. And uh, he passed away 2009, I think, 2010, somewhere in there. And yet he was this, this he's Brazilian, uh, uh, really had a sense of using community-based drama. And, and this is, you know, plays and, and performances that are tied, that come out of community identity and thus also have a lot of connection to community ritual as a way to reinvigorate one's voice, one's agency within society. So when we're talking about theater of the oppressed, you know, clearly the, the, the kind of foundational aspect of what Boal was doing was to try and provide communities of people with a sense of belonging and identity that they could then draw agency from to um, uh, push back against their oppressors. And it's an incredibly powerful, incredibly useful form of, of theater making in the world. And, and I think that there's ways to appropriate uh, some of his methods and ideas into theater making. It isn't necessarily about um, trying to, to throw off an oppressor, but it's just more about this sense of, you know, what do we as a community find to be the most valuable things about us? and what we do and who we are. And it becomes ritual when you embody those things idealistically or, or you know, even in, in ways that are trying to negotiate the difficulties of, of being a member in that community. And then you continue to repeat it. Like I think that one of the aspects of ritual that's so, that's so valuable is repetition. And I think initially, at least I feel this way, repetition is one of the most boring aspects of drama to see something repeated over and over and over again or you know i think about you know singing your hymns in church the the kind of strophic nature of it that you'd have you know, basically first verse chorus second verse chorus third verse chorus you know that kind of stuff like pretty standard stuff um you know this that seems boring and it is it, it the, here's the thing there's the secret it is boring it only becomes not boring when you've done it so many times. It's like why your parents take you to church for the first, you know, decade or more of your life. Because at some point, you begin to miss not going to church, right? You know, you begin to think, oh, man, I, I'm, I really miss that community. I miss that connection. I miss singing those songs. I miss, miss doing that thing that I would do once a week, every week at this day and time. And I, that's all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, all that stuff that I used to participate in, particularly when I was a kid and I hated, now all of a sudden has this meaningfulness to me that is, is almost unrepeatable anywhere else. And I think that the more that we look to creating the kind of theater that does that, and you're right I, as well, that, that it's not literary based theater. I, I, I don't think these are things you can pre-plan necessarily. Like you can't hire a great playwright, no matter how good they are, how many Tonys and Obies they want, and bring them in and expect them to create a perfect, you know, ritual play for you. It's the kind of thing where it has to be a community effort. It has to be communal. It has to be repeated. It has to be done over and over again. And last thing I'll say to this too, like you, you brought up medieval theater and, and I, by the way, I didn't even know you did that in Oxford. 
Oh yeah, it was great. It was really fun. You know, it wasn't the world's most uh, sophisticated literary drama, but well, it was sure. a really, it was a really uh, fun night of theater. And everybody, which, which play you know, were you in? Like, what playlet uh, did you do? I, I was actually I played a God and Jesus throughout. So I was God oh. in the Old Testament, and it plays, and then yeah. Jesus in the New Testament plays. Ah, okay. Your beard must have helped you. I yeah, think yeah. That. That's what. That's how I got the part. <laughs> and also i think that, I yeah, that, think that like, guy with the beard he can be jesus yeah. well they i think they also liked the idea of having an american uh, <laughs> uh because you know it's sort of like my my accent kind of set me apart from oh uh, okay yeah. i get you i get you yeah yeah, yeah. It, it puts you above everyone else is what you're saying yes that is <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> Well, I'm going to, I choose to interpret it that way. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like that's like, like one of the things that I think is most uh, so misunderstood out there about, about medieval theater and medieval drama is that there's, it, it, that it's all about teaching Bible stories, that there's this idea that, or that, that the drama, you know, people were illiterate and therefore stupid. And thus they needed fun little entertaining things to learn their own beliefs, to learn what they believe, to learn the stories of their belief and the individuals and figures at, at the heart of it uh, and, and how it comes about that we believe the things that we say we believe, so on and so forth. And, and that's just silly. That's just absolutely silly. It's not, it's, it's historically inaccurate. It's, it's lazy and, and yes, the plays, like when you read the surviving scripts of the Middle Ages, they're, they're not great literary drama. You know, they're, uh, you know, it's kind of like, it feels like, El, you know, like, you know, Sunday school type Bible story type stuff. But the fact is, and, and you know, and a lot of it does come out of like liturgical stuff. And there's a lot, you know, there's this thing called liturgical drama. And, and I actually don't believe there is such a thing as liturgical drama, but that's a whole discussion for another episode. Um, and I, if you, if you guys want to know why that is, just tweet at me and I will tell you why that is. Or you could also read Michael Norton's book on, on liturgical drama and the origins of it, which is excellent. And he does a great job of explaining why that designation is, is problematic on many levels. Nonetheless, one of the things that's so key about the middle ages is that you hit on it's that the drama is about bringing together a group of people to not only express this is what we believe in, or to say these are the stories we find meaning in, but actually to provide a, a, a medium through which they can contest their own greatest anxieties in their community, their concerns, their, they can push back against authority. A lot of medieval drama is actually making fun of the church and making fun of bishops. There's this great play called Bobbio, where he's a priest and he's a uh, lecherous priest he's trying to get together with his stepdaughter and he's got this manservant who is is uh getting in between him and his stepdaughter at every step of the way and then in the end the servant ends up castrating this priest named bobbio which is a fun silly name to play and you would never think that that was was a medieval play but it is and so you've got all this kind of subversive content you've got a bit of risque content you've got even in Bible stories, the play I directed at, at the Cloisters in New York a few years ago, we did, you know, it, it's called The Play of Adam. Obviously, there's the story of Adam and Eve that opens the play. And Eve is a very, very, she's the main focus of the first part of the play, not Adam. And Eve is this woman with, with, with agency, and she's questioning, why am I not favored by God when I'm just as smart as this doofus Adam? And I can do just as much. I can go to school. I can learn these things. Why am I a second-class citizen? And, and the devil then uses that questioning to kind of go, aha, I have the answer for you. Just eat this apple. Ha ha. And, and those sorts of things. And it's not denigrated that Eve would ask these questions. What's denigrated is that the, she doesn't seek the answers to the questions from from god she actually seeks them from this this devil creature that just kind of happens to come into her into her path and there's so the the, the play is really more about who are you asking the questions to who you know like these aren't there's not wrong to think this way there's nothing wrong with wanting to to be more in life but you've got to seek the answers from the proper sources and then there's questions about labor when we talk about adam and e or, uh, cain and abel and, you know, who brings what that the whole story encapsulates this question about an agricultural community versus a more kind of like a market town 
um, you know, that have these mercantilistic aspects of it, the way that the, the town is, is economically um, uh, dependent on. And so you've, it, it's like the, the, the stories that are familiar from the Bible are not just Bible stories. They're vehicles in which the community can deal with the questions that are most pressing to them and they can work through it and they can express their concerns to both themselves and to the community much larger outside of, of, of say like a single monastery or uh, a, a group of, of, you know, um, guild or something like that, a group of like civic organization, that kind of thing in town, like to, to broadcast beyond to everyone else, a greater populace, what it is that they see in their town, what do they see themselves, what are they worried about, that kind of stuff. So yeah, absolutely much more, but it, but it is, it draws from rituals. You've got liturgies, you've got all these kind of things, which are familiar, which are common, which are experienced by all these people in this society. And they come together to work out their problems using these rituals. And I think that's a thing that there would be a real appetite for. And I think that, um, you know, I, I mean, I guess like we have kind of a, a negative view of like educational theater and think about it, like, you know, what it was like in school or think about, you know, what it was like in school or church or what have you. Um, but I think that that's a really exciting thing. And, and, you know, it may be like returning to the question that we kind of started with. Um, it may be the case that um, there, there should be less of a distinction between ritual and theater in lots of ways that, um, you know, that we're kind of trying to draw a dichotomy where there doesn't necessarily need to be one and that we can productively um, remove that barrier and kind of figure out some new ways of making theater that speaks to stuff that people are experiencing. And, um, you know, I think that that's like the, the thing that is really exciting to me. Now, you know, my knowledge of medieval theater is uh, incomplete at best. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, I don't know uh, as much um, anywhere near approaching the amount that you do about the subject, but the thing that interests me about it and the reason that I'm always interested in um, studying it and using it as a, uh, a sort of model for some of the work that I would like to do is that I feel like it is really, um, you know, it's really productive, a really productive uh, sort of space for thinking about non-professional actors or non-professional uh, companies that are rooted to the community that they're producing things in. And, you know, I also think like, it's such a weird thing to assume that the past was boring. Like people have never liked being bored, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's like, why would people spend so much time and so much effort putting on a show that bored them. They wouldn't, um, you know, there was lots of stuff in these plays that was um, exciting and funny and challenging and that um, appealed to the people doing them, seeing them. And I think that's, um, you know, that's, we kind of look to theater as a, a place to um, have our imaginations shaped. And I think that that uh, that the the ritual aspects of that are things that we should really um, should really lean into, and it's you know this is kind of the the one time a year where we sort of think of theater doing that because of you know it's the one time of year when most people are exposed to religious drama. You know, you see your kids yeah. wearing uh, bathrobes and and stuff to be shepherds or uh, you know. The, Have you ever the, heard of the Living the Christmas Tree or a Living Christmas yes, Tree? Yes, yes. There was a very uh, a very big one. Uh, the Chattanooga Boys Choir, where I grew up, did a yeah. big Living Christmas Tree. Oh, we did one. There was one in Little Rock every year that was, it wasn't a boys choir, but it was a, an adult choir. It was really cool. Yeah. I that every year. Yeah, I feel like, you know, we, uh, there was a city, there was also like a, I don't think they still do it anymore, but they did like a city, um, uh, um, civic performance it was called the grand illumination oh. and it was the weekend after thanksgiving in this park downtown in chattanooga where i grew up they would have like um different uh schools and different groups do um a show and the sort of overarching narrative of the show was about like uh getting ready to uh start the christmas season and you know the kind of kind of a, a standard thing about like finding yeah. finding your christmas spirit and it ended with santa like announcing that the um the it was it was officially christmas because everything had been restored and they turned on all the lights in the downtown area oh that's so cool yeah, that, yeah. i mean that is amazing 
That's I I think it's very medieval, but you know maybe that's yeah, my oh, biases. No, no, I, it out, definitely but. is. Uh, and uh, you know, it's funny I hadn't thought about it in a really long time until just now. And you don't that, think they don't they don't still do that? You don't I think? don't know if they do anymore. I think that it uh, it might have the person who was kind of in charge of doing it. I think retired, and so I don't mm. know if there's if there's still anything like that going on. But I loved going as a, a like even into high school. It was such like you know I mean there was there were some corny aspects of it, but sure. it was. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a fun way to like, think about like, okay, well, the, the holiday season has started, uh, Advent is underway. Um, have you experienced any theater that, that you would like, is there anything, um, that's more modern, more contemporary that, that you feel fits well with kind of a ritual way of doing a ritual mode? I think that's maybe the best way to explain this, a ritual mode for theater. Hmm. Um, interesting. I haven't. I have one in mind while you think, because there's there's a play that was written by Tim. I believe his last name's Couch. It's either Couch or Crouch. I think it's Couch. Tim Couch. He wrote a play called Total Immediate Collective Imminent Terrestrial Salvation. I hope I got all those right. And it was done at the the Scottish National Theater, I believe, in 2018, 2017, 2018, and then at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival um shortly thereafter and it's this very fascinating piece it's a, you know, the play is really is is pretty simple actually the play is is about a, a cult in that that started in england but then moved to south america and they are waiting for the end of the world and it's supposed to come not by not my means of of, of some grand force be it be it you know something divine or, or godlike or you know and it's not aliens it's just that a black hole is going to emerge and in the world <laughs> and so you know it's very based in in you know it's out, it's trying to be as a religious as possible in terms of like the, the the human religions that we're most familiar with but it's still very very religious at the same time the weird thing about it is this you sit in a circle in a, any space doesn't have to be even a theater space just found space whatever and you have the script with you you have they call it the book and you have the book with you and the actors have the book so everybody's got the book and at some points this the one of the main characters there's only three characters in the show one of them miles he's the 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 cult leader and the father to the main girl in the story and he actually asks audience members to read from the book so you read these like passages as if they were like you know, you were reading at a religious service from your religious text. And furthermore, the script has illustrations in it. It's like, it's almost like a medieval manuscript. Again, here's me trying to compare everything from the Middle Ages. But, um, you know, it's like very much like a medieval manuscript. You have the text, but you also have these beautiful illustrations that that continue the story of, of the play, but also do things that are very different from the story that just kind of embellish and, and add flourish to the text so the text is performing as well so you kind of it, it it somewhat undercuts the power of a literary theater by by even making the literature visible the literature perform for individual audience members as well as perform as an as a part of the play and so there's a lot of really ritualistic aspects that 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 come together and you you're watching this play thinking oh this is interesting this is interesting you know the way they're doing this is and then all of a sudden you're like wait am i am i like, I, like by the time miles comes out and he starts interacting with the audience and getting us to all basically get ramped up for the end of the world you're like what well, I, I i am i in this cult <laughs> am i like am i implicated in this dramatic action in a way that I didn't have a choice about, or, you know, I, it was very, it's brilliantly done, brilliantly done. But I think that's one of these plays that, that, that to me is introducing a lot of new stuff, novel stuff into theater that, that is really exciting, but also pulls heavily from ritual and religion in a way that isn't, that isn't trying to recreate it. That's uh, a, that sounds like a really interesting night. Uh, and the kind of thing that would really challenge your perceptions of what, uh, you know, I think that a lot of people still like think of and want theater to involve going in and sitting there and seeing something and then leaving. Um, uh, two things came to mind, one of which I would say is like not really, um, 
I wouldn't really say was ritualistic or, or necessarily, but I think it, it incorporates some of these ideas. But uh, the, I saw a, uh, an undergrad production of Mr. Burns, a post-electric play that I think very much uh, toys with a lot of ideas about ritual, the way that theater is created. And, you know, like yeah. you go, that's you a good you show. Know, yeah, yeah, it's a great play. Um, and uh, it's um, the, the production I saw of it was one of the best undergrad productions I've ever seen of anything. Um, and, you know, the, the third act of that is very much uh, about like, what if, what would survive an apocalypse and what if the Simpsons became a ritual, uh, you know, a religious ritual almost. Um, and, uh, but uh, I saw um, Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind here in Chicago um, a couple of times at the Neo Futurarium. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, it was, um, um, they're not doing it anymore right now. The, the person who created it has uh, decided they're gonna, they wanna do something else with it. So it's not running at the Neo Futurarium anymore, but it was uh, 30 plays in 60 minutes was the idea. And um, so, uh, the, and a varying length and it's done in a different order every night. The audience calls out which one they wanna see. And the, there's a, a an MC who kind of picks them and controls the way that it unfolds. But there were several of the the short plays that involved like the audience becoming a character in the play or um, or doing various aspects, uh, you know, of the performance. Um, and then there's, you know, uh, uh, the, one of the traditions of the theater was every every time they sold out, they would order a pizza at the beginning of the show from the pizza place down the street. And then they it ended by giving everybody a little bit of pizza. So, you know, there was also sort of like um, the, in the way that, you know, I'm not comparing it to mass in that way, but they're the, traditionally like uh, food and sharing a meal yeah. has, has often been part of religious observance. Um, and so there were certainly some aspects there and it was a lot more interactive. It was a lot more about um the the generating a sense of community i feel like then then you know uh some of the other stuff that you might see in a city like chicago um yeah and I, I think that you know there are aspects of that i think like uh the thing that i would um would be interested in hearing from listeners about and and uh like kind of pointing them to is thinking about incorporating this into the stuff that you're doing you know if you're working with students what are some ways um that you can, uh, you know, I mean, um, I don't, I don't want to like pat myself on the back here too much, but I did. Uh, but go the, ahead, the, go ahead. Pat. Yeah, yeah. The first play I directed um, when I was uh, teaching high school, we did a Greek tragedy, uh, uh, Iphigenia at Aulis. And then, um, and the, the version we used was like 60 minutes. So it, as a second act, I had the students write their own play uh, that was like a, a sort of satyr play yeah um you know kind of sending up and the the previous um the the tragedy and and highlighting some stuff about it that they thought was silly and dealing with some of their own concerns it was really really fun and people really really liked it um you know it was uh it was not the easiest thing in the world to do and there were some things that i probably about it that i probably would do differently again but i think that um you know that too often we think of our students as like needing so badly to get training in doing realism and doing Shakespeare, doing musicals. And, you know, if we're preparing them for the field, they certainly need that, that we often, um, you know, don't think about letting them, you know, the, like uh, writing and creating and devising their own stuff, which I think is a really powerful way to give them a sense of ownership over, over the artwork um, that they might not necessarily get from, yeah. uh, just from, you know, doing scripted drama, uh, which is traditionally how most people's training is constituted. Yeah, and the ritual, ri what ritual does is it pulls us away from scripted drama because it forces us to, I mean, a ritual is the means by which the performance engages, interacts, and encourages the audience. Like, it brings them into the performance. So, so if you are teaching out there and you're thinking about how to use ritual as a way to to give your students more agency in this thing that we call theater then it's really about how do you want your performers to engage and interact with the audience and and how do you make the audience comfortable and and with that in the sense that isn't just 
you know, come out into the house and grab a person and bring them on stage kind of thing, but more so acting, asking them to do things they're familiar with because rituals are familiar. Rituals, rituals have commonality about them. And so, you know, asking the audience to do something that they're familiar with is, is never going to take them too far outside of their comfort zone such that you can bring that work and what they're doing into the performance holistically and, better erase that line, which is a line that is the invention of the modern theater, that aesthetic line between performance, performer, and audience, spectator. Yeah. And, and so I think that's the value in ritual is that it, it, it works, it does the work to erase that line in ways that are, that, that allows everyone to remain relatively comfortable, rel, you know, relatively within the familiar and, and yet do something new and interesting with the familiar, with the common, in a way that makes new meaning and new mm. inscribes new ideas within those practices, such that, you know, yeah, I, you, you, you know, you kind of, I hate to put it this way, you kind of kill the playwright a little yeah. bit. And, and there are places for that. Like, again, this is not to say that we should only be doing this mm. kind of theater, but you know, in some places, in some cases, you know, particularly if you're a school without a big budget for drama and you don't, you can't you know, do big musicals and you can't maybe afford the rights to the plays you always want to do, man, pick something up like this. Give your students a challenge. I bet you they will, they will surprise you with how well they can come up with things that, that ritual aspects that speak to their own generation, to their peers in a way that makes performance, that makes theater more engaging and more accessible for themselves and their peers. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a really fun thing to do. And I think that's a, um, a challenge that we don't often get, uh, you know, that um, you kind of like, you almost have to leave undergrad to get to a point where you can kind of do these types of things. And um, I think that incorporating that more into the training, I think would be good for everybody and is a, a good way of like doing really interesting stuff, especially if you're doing it um, maybe with budgetary constraints. Yeah. And who uh, isn't? Yeah, right. That's, that's, that is, you're not in theater if you're not working under budgetary constraints. Yeah. And yeah, and consider doing some medieval plays, folks. I, I You're going to hear me say that over and over and over again. Yeah. That, consider doing anything but Shakespeare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. You don't have to pay any rights for it, and it's a lot of fun, silly stuff. Uh, there's a lot of good, good, interesting things. And, and hit me up on Twitter if you want uh, suggestions of medieval plays that are that are not your standard biblical fare. I'm happy to provide some suggestions. Well, Seth, it's come to that point in the podcast where I have to ask you, what are you working on? Oh, uh, so I'm going to be teaching an acting class uh, in the spring. Um, uh, acting one uh, at the College of DuPage in the uh, Chicago Burbs, so I am preparing. Um, it's been a it's been a couple of years since I've taught acting, but uh, I'm very excited, very much looking forward to it, and preparing for that. Um, and I am revising and finishing an article about an Afro-Bin play called The Widow Rancher that I'm hoping ah. uh, hoping to submit a couple of places and to see if I can get some traction on it. Very cool, excellent. Well, uh, I am currently in the throes of finishing a chapter that I was commissioned to write about the Luros de Antichristo, the play about the Antichrist. Full, told you, middle, medieval drama's got some weird stuff out there, man. You want an Antichrist play? There's a few. And so I, I did my dissertation on this play, and so I was approached to write this chapter. So the book is, if I remember correctly, the title is Music in the Apocalyptic Mode. Oh. And so they they... They really wanted to include a chapter on this play and contacted me about it. And I was I'm happy to contribute. And so I'm, I'm nearing the end of, of my draft submission. I have to have it to them in a few days. And so uh, I'm kind of furiously finishing that as, as well as we finished the semester. So uh, successful there, had a great time, did a lot of great fun things with, with students this semester and looking forward to doing more next semester. I'm teaching an advanced or advanced level movement voice and movement class next semester, which I have to do a lot of prep for. I've not taught at this level that kind of course before. So lots of things, lots of things to work on over the break. Um, some article revisions uh, or, or edits that I need to do for something that I'm, that I will be published soon. And I'll tell you more about that later when it gets uh, close to publication, but yeah, just stay busy. Very exciting. Yeah. Well, this is a, uh, you know, I think we 
tend to think of uh, this period between the semesters as being kind of a, a down period, but mm -hmm. it tends to be filled with lots and lots of activity so that's very yeah. exciting and uh we'll look yeah. forward to to reading all of this is it well thank you pleasure. yeah remember remember folks like teachers just because they get breaks doesn't doesn't mean that we stop working yeah that's just the time that we have to use to do the other half of, of our stated contract which is the research and synthesis of the the work that we're doing and contribute to our field in that respect so you kind of shift gears from focusing mostly on teaching to focusing more on those aspects of your work so don't think that we sit down for a second and get to relax. <laughs> well, Seth, this is fun. Uh, I always enjoy the ritual of doing this podcast. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so thank you for doing that with me. I, I, I wish you all the best over the holidays. And, and I know it must be exciting with the new addition in your family and yeah, building some new traditions and new rituals for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, this was a, an appropriate topic for that very reason. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, uh, tell the folks how to get in touch with you on Twitter if they want uh, to. You can find me at Sethwish on Twitter. And you can find me at Kyle underscore A underscore Thomas. Or you can tweet at the podcast at Teaching Drama. We are so excited that you all have decided to spend this year with us. Um, and we look forward to spending the next year with you. Seth, say goodbye to all the good people out there. Goodbye to all you good people out there. You all have a lovely holiday season. Thank you for joining us. This has been the Teaching Drama Podcast.